Chris McKay, Andy Weir, and Larry Ringworld Niven this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Join me at the Contact Conference in Sunnyvale, California, for brief conversations with three visionaries. By sheerest coincidence, I'll also talk with Bill Nye about plans to get humans to Mars sooner than most of us had thought possible. And Bruce Betts will once again help us celebrate the night sky. We begin with a look forward from senior editor Emily Lakdawalla. Start of a new month, Emily, and it's time, therefore, to uh, review your What's Up Around the Solar System uh, piece, which uh, is at planetary.org. There's far too much here, as usual, for us to be able to cover, but uh, there are certainly some highlights. One of them, for me, has to be this beautiful visualization based on what Maven is telling us about the Martian atmosphere. MAVEN is a mission that's a little bit difficult to write about because it doesn't instantly produce beautiful pictures. It it takes a lot of work to present the science that it's doing based on the motions of the upper atmosphere, the magnetosphere, and how the solar wind is interacting with Mars. And that's exactly what a group at the Goddard Space Flight Center did to produce these visualizations of how the solar wind is stripping Mars's atmosphere away. And they just won some prizes from the AAAS for their work. And you can see why. It's it's a gorgeous animation, and of course you can see it in this uh, blog entry. All right, uh, how about to Rosetta? A bit of a scare. Yeah, it's the kind of scare that this mission has had before, but it doesn't make it any less scary. When it flies very close to the comet, as it was uh, last weekend, it was about five kilometers away, its star trackers, which are necessary for Rosetta to understand its orientation in space, its star trackers confused some moving dust with stars, and that makes the spacecraft unsure of where it is, and it has to go into a safe mode and radio Earth for help. But when it did that, it actually got even more confused and was out of contact with Earth for about 24 hours before they regained control. It's going to keep trying, though. That that mission only has until September to finish up its its uh, comet science, and I'll be there in Germany this September to watch the very last moments of that mission. Wow, that will be uh, very, very exciting. New Horizons, uh, still waiting for pictures, but we are getting stamps. <laughs> yeah, New Horizons is steadily trickling the data down slowly, slowly, but we did finally get a very important publication out of this mission, which was a new set of United States postage stamps. <laughs> they they update a set that was issued quite some time ago that had pictures of each of the planets, and then it had Pluto, which was at the time still a planet. It said Pluto not yet explored. And uh, the New Horizons mission actually stuck one of those stamps on the spacecraft and sent it out away from the solar system. And now we have these new stamps with a gorgeous New Horizons photo of Pluto, and Pluto is now explored. And as proof that uh, the hits just keep on coming around the solar system, something that didn't make it into your uh, June 1st blog, because it only just happened uh, 24 hours ago as we speak, Curiosity. That's right. Curiosity's 12th drill site on Mars. This one really snuck up on me. They're drilling fast now that they're at Mount Sharp and are doing great science. All right. Doing what it's supposed to do. Thank you very much, Emily. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Matt. She is the senior editor for the Planetary Society, our planetary evangelist, and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine, and just learned that she's going to be on a panel at Comic-Con in San Diego this summer. How cool is that? Uh, well, here's more cool for you. Bill Nye is the CEO of the Planetary Society. Bill, Mars seems to become more of a real destination as every day goes by. 
Uh, I know what you mean. It is a real destination, but I mean, it seems like we're going to get there, uh, that humankind will get there. Yeah, the big news, I guess, is SpaceX wants to put stuff on the Martian surface, uh, first of all, in 2018. That's less than two years from now. As soon as, yeah. And then land the big stuff with humans in 2024. That is extraordinarily fast. They have yet to launch their Falcon Heavy. And we're all fans of the Falcon 9, right on, go Falcon 9. The Falcon Heavy is three times that many engines. as 27 engines. <laughs> and so they got to test, to me, it seems like they got to test this thing. And, you know, of course, the Planetary Society is included, Matt, because we're going to launch our light sail, too, on the second Falcon Heavy next spring, we believe. Of course, we're going to talk about planetary protection. And in the meantime, by that, I mean keeping uh, humans from contaminating this other world. And in the meantime, NASA is going to continue with its sample return scheme. It's really extraordinary. What an extraordinary time, Mars-wise. And at the same time, at that meeting, the, that summit, Humans to Mars, that you and I were at recently, Lockheed Martin made its announcement. Yes. Their plot to their plan, not a plot, from what they call the Mars Base Camp, which sounds yes. a lot like humans orbiting Mars to me. Yes. Once again, the Planetary Society, I really am proud of this, Matt. I'm glad you brought this up. We uh, issued a report based on a meeting we had a year ago. Called, we called Humans Orbiting Mars in 2033. And 2033 is chosen because you wouldn't have to increase the NASA budget. If you decided to do it, if you were in charge, you could arrange a series of missions, a mission architecture as it's called, to get humans in orbit around Mars in 2033. Well, Lockheed Martin presented a scheme. It's very, very similar. Just happened to use almost exclusively Lockheed hardware, which is fine. And to go a couple orbits earlier in 2028. And that would just be fantastic. Put humans in orbit around Mars in 2028 and land two or four years later would just be fantastic. So I'm hoping that uh, the aggressive plans of SpaceX will actually merge with the aggressive plans of Lockheed Martin and the plans which will come into being at NASA once all these people really get serious about it. Establishing a consensus on how to get to Mars, which is the dream of our board of directors, I'll tell you. It's a very exciting time. Very exciting times indeed. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Matt. That's the CEO of the Planetary Society. He's Bill Nye, the science guy. Now we go on to the contact conference, one that you probably have never heard of, but should have. And I was there a couple of months ago talking to some pretty interesting people, including Andy Weir. Scientists, writers, and artists exploring the possibilities for human futures. That's the mission of a biannual conference in Sunnyvale, California, called Contact, Cultures of the Imagination. It was just about as fun and fascinating as that sounds. I have to thank author Kim Stanley Robinson for letting me know it exists. He has been participating for nearly all of its more than three decades. Anthropologist James Fanaro founded and still runs Contact, he agreed with me that it's sort of a poor man's TED conference, loosely focused on the exploration of space and the search for life in the universe. I was proud to see that many of the guest speakers were past guests of this show, including Penny Boston, Seth Shostak, space artist Rick Sternbach, and two of the guests you're about to hear. 
We'll start with Andy Weir, the man who stranded the Martian on the Red Planet and kept us in fascinated suspense as he fought to stay alive. I sat down with Andy moments after he delivered a presentation with a very promising message. You're in your backyard, aren't you? Yeah, How'd I you know. find out? James Fenaro uh, just emailed me and invited me to come, and I'm like, well, this is like like five miles from my house, so you know, how can I say no? You got to talk about that presentation that you just made, uh-huh. and then we'll say why you crazy man, you you've been doing <laughs> all of this research. Mm-hmm. But first, the conclusions that you reached in there. And they were, as you put it, assumptions. Assumptions. Yeah, explain that in a moment. But but that's very encouraging. Well, yeah. According to my according to my calculations, based on wild assumptions that cannot be backed up, um, I think that the price to LEO for a passenger uh, could be could get as low as seven thousand bucks, and the price to put freight into low Earth orbit could be as low as thirty five bucks in twenty fifteen dollars. I don't know when that'll happen, but. What were some of the assumptions you made to reach those pretty amazing numbers? Well, assumption number one was that the commercial uh, space industry would have the same fuel cost overhead ratio as the modern commercial airline industry, which works out to be about 16.5%. In other words, in the real world, airlines spend about 16.5% of all the money they get on jet fuel. And I said, well, what if a commercial space industry had that exact same overhead? 16.5% goes to rocket fuel, and the other 83, 83 point whatever, goes to to overhead, uh, buying new ships, um, maintenance, salary, taxes, etc. And then I just worked from there. I also assumed that a spacecraft that could carry X people would weigh the same as an aircraft that can carry X people. This is excluding fuel. And then the final assumption I made was that all engineering problems would be solved, uh, boosters would be completely reusable with minimal maintenance between uses, and that they would use hydrogen oxygen as the fuel. These are some big engineering challenges. And you used as a baseline a Boeing 777, just packed with people, 550 people, but, but doable. You, are you actually talking about a spacecraft, possibly with that kind of capacity? Absolutely. I'm just talking about saying, like, if, you know, we can, make a, we can make a plane that carries that many people, so we could make a spaceship that carries that many people. You also talked about the, the technical evolution that got us from, you know, the Wright brothers and Charles Lindbergh to that Boeing 777. Do you see that underway? Uh, I do. I don't see it underway as fast as I'd like. But basically, the reason we have a commercial air industry in the world, and especially in America, is because the government dumped huge amounts of money into helping the burgeoning air travel industry when it first started. They had the U.S. Postal Service buy huge amounts of uh, air freight for, for air mail. They set aside extremely valuable land in the middle of major metropolises to be airports. I mean, just the investment that the U.S. federal government made in to building up the, uh, the commercial airline industry was phenomenal. And it has since paid off many, many multiples more than, than, than we put into it, of course, because of taxes, revenues, jobs, everything that the commercial airline industry provided. And I think the same can be done for the commercial space industry. And we see a little of that starting to happen now with the commercial crew program. Um, NASA is required to spend a certain percentage of its budget um, to outsource booster developments. That's why we have companies like SpaceX and Boeing working on cheaper and cheaper boosters. And you're a big fan of that, aren't you? Commercial space development. Oh, absolutely. I think it's the only way forward. The only way to make a real uh, space 
industry is for there to be a commercial and capitalist incentive. Some entity that has billions of dollars needs to decide if we spend a couple of billion dollars, we will get a bunch of billions of dollars in the end. And you talk about this as well. I've spent my seven grand my for my economy seat up in orbit. I got my bag of peanuts. I have to keep them down, too. Yeah. Uh, what am I going to do while I'm up there? Well, I imagine that since the freight price to low Earth orbit would only be 35 bucks per kilogram, large wealthy entities could build space hotels, uh, things like that, things of that nature. When you consider the price that it costs to build a, um, a resort, like a, a resort in the Caribbean, they'll spend two, three hundred million dollars building that. Well, if you wanted to build the inter- if you wanted to put something the mass of the International Space Station in orbit, it would only cost ten million dollars by these by these prices I calculated. And of course, I mean some assembly required, right? That's just the price of getting it up there. Building it is a different matter. But this is all in the in the same scale and order of magnitude of what modern companies pay right now for major resorts, because they know they'll turn a profit. Now, we know you, and we know that you might have just done all this math just to, just to do it, just as an exercise. But you actually are building towards something. Tell us what's coming. Yeah, it's my, uh, my next book uh, is about a city on the moon, and it's predicated on, on this assumption that the price to LEO gets driven down and down by, by commercial entities. It's always bothered me when I see a science fiction story about people living on the moon. I'm like, what is the economic incentive here? And in my case, my, my moon city is like, if you do all the math and, and use these numbers, you end up with, it is, it, you can turn a profit just with the tourism industry. And so how much to get my kilogram uh, up to the surface of the moon? Uh, it ends up being $168 in, in 2015 dollars from the surface of Earth to the surface of the moon. Not bad. Did no. you happen to take this out to, uh, what's that red planet? I forget. Uh, Mars, Mars. Actually, I didn't, I didn't work that out because I was so focused on my, on my moon story. I haven't been thinking about Mars that much, believe it or not. When might we see this new book? Probably uh, early to mid-2017. I'm working on the first draft now. So cool, Andy. And I'm very much looking forward to your participation in a panel about that that red planet tomorrow, led by uh, Chris McKay, another guy who's been on this show a lot. Yeah, along with Ken Stanley Robinson and Larry Niven. Really looking forward to that. Yeah, and and you just met one of your heroes. I did. I just met Larry Niven. I'm thrilled. (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Andy Weir, author of The Martian, preparing to take us to the moon. We'll return to the Contact Conference with Chris McKay and the great Larry Nevin. This is Planetary Radio. This is Robert Picardo. I've been a member of the Planetary Society since my Star Trek Voyager days. You may have even heard me on several episodes of Planetary Radio. Now I'm proud to be the newest member of the Board of Directors. I'll be able to do even more to help the Society achieve its goals for space exploration across our solar system and beyond. You can join me in this exciting quest. The journey starts at planetary.org. I'll see you there. Do you know what your favorite presidential candidate thinks about space exploration? Hi, I'm Casey Dreyer, the Planetary Society's Director of Space Policy. You can learn that answer and what all the other candidates think at planetary.org slash election 2016. You know what? We could use your help. If you find anything we've missed, you can let us know. It's all at planetary.org slash election 2016. Thank you.
Welcome back to Planetary Radio. You heard Andy Weir mention the panel he would be part of at the Contact Conference. Chris McKay moderated that wonderful discussion. Chris is a senior scientist at NASA's Ames Research Center and one of the founders of a field known as astrobiology. As you'll hear, Chris was also a founding member of the self-proclaimed Mars Underground, the small group of scientists and true believers who years ago fought to keep Mars missions and science alive. The group included the new director of NASA's Astrobiology Institute, Penny Boston, and planetary scientist roboticist Carol Stoker. I caught Chris in a hallway right after the session. You just led this fascinating panel. What a great group. Yeah, a bunch of scientists, science fiction writers, uh, together uh, talking about why we go to Mars, and, uh, and it worked out really well. There's an interesting chemistry and feedback between science fiction and science, and we saw it on this panel. Yeah, and we heard from scientists like you how much of a role the science fiction played in what you do. That's right. Virtually all the scientists on the panel claimed they were inspired by one or the other science fiction work. And interesting to me was how some of the science fiction writers claimed they were inspired by the science results. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful example of how, how humans work. Uh, we are inspired by, by our imagination and uh, what we do is uh, inspire, our imagination is inspired by what we do. At least one person mentioned the case for Mars. And I think of the Mars underground. That was you. That was Penny Boston, Carol. right? And Carol. Could you have had a discussion like this back in those days when you guys were kind of the voices in the darkness? Well, we could have had a discussion like that, but the context would have been different. It would have been a a, a fringe discussion. Now the idea of going to Mars is mainstream. I mean, NASA's officially trying to do it. There's movies about it. It's uh, it's no longer viewed as quite as edgy as it was back then, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a, it's it's fun to be on the edge. It's fun to be pushing the envelope. But it but at some point the notion that it becomes uh, accepted and and people foresee it uh, is also good. So yeah, it's good to be at this point. I had just one more. Until I can get you back for a, an extended conversation on the show, which is long overdue, there was a question about the methane on Mars. You had uh, a response which was a little depressing, but that's science, that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have found methane on Mars. The SAM instrument on Curiosity has made a series of precision measurements that in my mind are the best measurements of methane on Mars and the only ones to be given any credence to. And those measurements indicate a constant, very low level of methane consistent with just meteoritic infall of organic material. And I think that's the story of methane on Mars. All the other measurements, including the other measurements made by, by the SAM instrument in the low precision mode, uh, should just be discarded. They're not really precise or useful. These high precision measurements are the only data I think that really uh, addresses the question. So Penny Boston's interesting comment on that was, okay, now we have the reference point. Now we've established the baseline. And then she went on to say, you know, anything that's up there making methane is going to want to hang on to it. But what if some leaks out? What if, uh, could you still see a point source at some point telling us uh, things are more interesting? If there is methane being produced underground, Penny's point is exactly right. They're not, they're, it's going to be a disadvantageous to that system to be losing the methane. The, the counterpart to that is if there is such a source, the small leak that would be coming from it is going to be very hard to detect. 
I'm not very optimistic that searching for methane is a viable strategy for searching for life. That, I've never embraced that idea. Uh, we will find out more about this when the European orbiter goes around Mars and starts doing very high-precision methane mapping. I predict what it's going to find is a very low-level constant methane all over the planet, and I'm going to be saying, I told you so. <laughs> Unfortunately, I would love there to be exotic plumes of methane hither and yon flowing out in geysers, but it just the data just doesn't indicate that, and neither does the theory. When you come back, I'll have to have you tell us about this mission that apparently has been proposed, that you are the PI for, called Icebreaker, which I hadn't heard of. But okay. you want to give us a, a two-sentence uh, preview? Well, maybe sometime, Matt, I should sit down with you and talk about searching for life on Mars. I think that NASA is going to get serious about it now. NASA has been uh, directed by Congress to search for life in the outer solar system. Uh, the Mars program is going to say, hey, what about life on Mars? And suddenly, searching for life on Mars will become fashionable. And we, Carol and I, are working on a mission concept to address that need. And I think it's, it's, it's coming in gangbusters. So uh, in a few months, maybe uh, a little longer, we should have a really good story on how will we be ready to search for life when the Mars program decides it's time to catch up with what's now going on in the outer solar system. Let's do it. That was a good right. tease, though. Thanks, Chris. You bet. Good talking to you. Chris McKay at the 2016 Contact Conference in Sunnyvale, California. Now a special treat for you online listeners to the show, and especially for those of you who love the classics of hard science fiction. You know who Larry Niven is, and you know what he has created. Yeah, there's the Kazinti, a terrifying alien race that makes Klingons look like pacifists, there's Lucifer's Hammer, his and Jerry Pornell's terrific novel about how humanity barely survives a massive meteor strike. So much more, but I bet you've been waiting for me to mention Ringworld, the fictional location Niven created for a series of brilliant novels. Never heard of it? Well, it's only one of the grandest concepts ever put forward in science fiction. I just want to start by telling you I'm a huge fan, which you hear all the time, don't you? I do if I come here. <laughs> and you've been coming here for a long time. Are you one of the originals here at the Contact Conference? I was one of the originals. I, I've skipped many years since because this is, this is uh, building worlds is kind of what I do for a living. So it's, just, it, it's a busman's holiday. <laughs> but all sorts of worlds. The discussions here, the presentations, I told Jim, the founder, that some of these are, are TED-quality if not more interesting. Do you find stimulation, inspiration here for that other stuff you do with your life? Yes, I do. I come here mostly to listen. But there are a lot of people here who only want to, not only, but they, they're they here in part to hear people like you speak. One of your biggest fans, Andy Weir, the author of The Martian, yeah. was so honored to meet you yesterday. Uh, it's an interesting position to be in. I liked The Martian enough to give it a cover puff. Uh, so we're mutual, mutual admiration society. You know, Andy talked about uh, reading Ringworld many years ago. I think I still have my paperback copy. It's pretty dog-eared now. As a professional speculator, are we progressing, do you think, at, at the rate that you wish humanity was progressing toward, at least across the solar system, if not the stars? Oh, yes. I've watched a lot of the future happen. Uh, there, there were some mistakes in, in my picture of the future. I thought human beings would be more involved 
in, uh, in exploration. And I didn't see the possibilities of the machines. Well, let me ask you about a presentation we just heard from Kim Stanley Robinson, who was on the show not long ago with his premise that a lot of people have given him heat about, that humans may never themselves go to the stars. So what do you think? I think his premises are defensible. Hmm. I've seen, uh, oh, what am I thinking? The thousand-year plan that, it, that involves uh, linear accelerators stretching through the solar system to get ships to the other stars. <laughs> I don't, I don't uh, Kim's taken the pessimistic view. That's okay. I took the optimistic view, mostly. Yes, I'd say uh, the guy who invented the ring world and uh, is probably, I'm not too surprised to hear talking about solar system-sized linear accelerators to get us out there. Do you think that we, we need to go? I think for the safety of the species, we do. But I also think species don't stay the, stay the same anyway. Species mm. mutate and evolve. So what reaches the stars may not be human anymore. This is possibly that uh, human 2.0 that we've heard about quite a bit today into uh, uh, the machines. Mm -hmm. I, I'm with Kim in one respect. Uh, we should take over the solar system in order to protect our species. We should at least be able to stop the next dinosaur killer, asteroid. Mm which we may not be too far from the capability to do that right now, at least let's hope. We're much closer than we were when I wrote Lucifer's Hammer. Yes, another terrific book from the past. What are you up to now? What, are you, what should we be looking forward to? I don't know. I'm getting old, man. <laughs> uh, if, if, I, if, if I can help stop the next dinosaur killer, I'll have justified my existence on Earth. I'm thankful for many things that I think have justified your existence on Earth. If it was only for Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex, I'd be thankful for to you. <laughs> okay, I've amused some people. It's true. And far more. Thank you very much, Mr. Niven. Pleasure. Author Larry Niven at the 2016 Contact Conference in Sunnyvale, California. I'm grateful to conference founder Jim Funaro, and I hope to be back for the next one in 2018. What's up is what's next. Bruce Betts has returned to the Skype line so that we can uh, talk about what's up in the night sky. Welcome back. Hi, Matt. How you feeling? I'm feeling much better, thank you. Still yeah. a little residual coldness, but uh, basically good. Yeah, you sound great. You sound great. I got you a mask. I was at JPL uh, a couple of days ago in a clean room, so uh, they let me take an extra mask for you. I'll, I'll drop it off at the office. Thank you. <laughs> what's up? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going to be redundant and say Mars, Mars, but also in the evening sky, we've got Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn. So if you look to the south in the early evening, you'll see a really bright whitish object, brighter than any star in the sky. That's Jupiter. And then work your way over towards the east, and you'll see a really bright reddish, orangish object. That's Mars. And then near it, not too far away, is yellowish Saturn. And I uh, remind you, you can draw a line between those three, and it will basically be a line, or very close to it, since all the planets orbit in roughly the same plane. You can check out Mars near the moon on the 17th, so that'll be a pretty, pretty sight. That's the party in the sky. We move on to this week in space history. It was 2003 that the Mars Exploration Rover Spirit was launched. 
we move on to random space fact. There are 10 NASA field centers. They are Ames, Armstrong, Glenn, Goddard, JPL, Johnson, Kennedy, Langley, Marshall, Stennis. And Dopey, right? Uh, <laughs> they are considering renaming one of them. <laughs> Uh, all other facilities in the NASA bureaucratic hierarchy fall under the leadership of at least one of these field centers. Wow, that's very cool. And I love how, love how you just uh, reeled those off there. Well, yeah, uh, trying to burn out the brain of my fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'm not totally healthy. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's in question now. You can go on. We move on to the trivia contest, and I asked you, which direction... Does Jupiter's great red spot rotate as as seen from Earth or from, you know, above the planet? How'd we do? Well, most people got this one right, and we did get a lot of uh, entries for this. Uh, people uh, who, I guess, are very interested in getting that, that copy of Offworld Trading Company, that um, game that you tried out, the economic strategy game set on a future colonized Mars. Our winner, at least as chosen by Random.org, he won just uh, maybe six months ago. Is Andrew Jones up in Karava, Finland, one of our uh, listeners across the pond. He said the answer is anti-clockwise, because I'm British. But <laughs> as it's south of the equator, you might not see it. But anyway, you deduce as much. But then if you mean rotation of the Great Right Spot itself, still anti-clockwise, as I'm still British and going to bed now. <laughs> <laughs> how do you do uh fine we we would call it counterclockwise typically over in the in the in the colonies yeah what is that uh, uh george bernard shaw quote uh two civilizations separated by a common language <laughs> <laughs> now andrew picked up the 200 point itelescope.net uh astronomy account as well but we had two other winners of off-world trading company patrick mccabe of Palm Harbor, Florida, who said counterclockwise, and Eric Jaffe of Corte Madera, California. Uh, he said uh, it's clockwise as seen from within the storm, though that's not recommended. No, no, I think that would be unpleasant. Just a couple of others to mention. Kevin Hecht, a regular uh, entrant, uh, he got a little cranky. He added to his correct answer, all these modern kids with their digital clocks don't know their CW from their CCW. <laughs> Finally, this from Dave Fairchild. I think you will enjoy his uh, little poem, his little ditty this week. The great red spot is shrinking in its counterclockwise spin while rafting round the planet like a huckleberry fin. <laughs> Cassini probably noticed it in 1665 considerably longer than Bruce Betts has been alive. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank I don't you, like Dave. a day over 1670. No, not at all. Looking really good, actually. We're ready to move on. Back to NASA field centers. How many NASA field centers are currently named after former astronauts? Because they're named after all sorts of things. Politicians, presidents, who are also politicians, generals, aviation pioneers, scientists. How many are currently named after former astronauts? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. I love it. Uh, this one you've got until the 14th of June, June 14 at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, we'll backtrack a little bit here. We haven't given away a shirt in a while. Planetary Radio shirt will be yours along with a rubber asteroid from the Planetary Society and a 200-point account on that itelescope.net international astronomy service. And that's it. We're done. 
All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about the happiest thing in the universe. Thank you, and good night. Oh, man, while I try to think of that, I'm going to Disneyland. Can we say that? Uh, he's Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. No commercial uh, compensation was provided for that mention of the happiest place on Earth. <laughs> Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its high-concept members. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Mm-hmm.